Thank you, Lord, for miracles today. We thank you, Lord, that this is a place that welcomes your miracle-working power. And we thank you, Lord, to have that power work in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. Amen, amen, amen. Today we're going to talk about prevailing over persecution. And amen. And I think we'll speak specifically about religious persecution because that is one of the areas that, um, uh, you know, uh, there's only one war on this earth, and that's the war between good and evil. That's the war between God and the lesser gods of this world, principalities and powers, rulers uh, of darkness. And so whenever war is played out in the natural, it is a, a, an offshoot or it's an a, um, offspring of this uh, spiritual war that started off in the heavens. Uh, we need to understand that uh, you need to choose sides in this war. There are only two sides. Uh, there's a winning side and there's a losing side. And so that's really all you need to know, that God is the winning side. And when you choose God, I don't care what, how difficult the circumstance and situation, you choose God's way, uh, you will always win. You will always win. You'll reign victorious. Uh, you know, sometimes victory is um, a, a absence of, of um, strife and conflict. Uh, sometimes victory can be long-lasting. You'll see laws change. You'll see uh, things change in the natural. But you need to know that you have to choose sides. This is very important. Uh, when we uh, gave, God gave us a word in last session about uh, being adamant that, that we are <clears throat> rock-like people in the earth. And we have chosen our side. And we will stay on the Lord's side as long as we're here. And it's very important to recognize uh, where God is, what he wants you to do. Uh, Understand how the devil uh, lures people over his side with subtlety and deceit. And so uh, in speaking about religious persecution, there are um, agencies now that have arisen that are getting more and more numerous. Uh, These are are, um, legal Uh, facilities and legal organizations that fight religious intolerance persecution and uh, fight for religious freedom because that is one of the freedoms that is guaranteed by our constitution so not only do you have god's assurance that you're free to worship him that you're, if you want to be stupid and worship anything else, you're free to do that too. But if you really seek for the real, true, and living God, he will reveal himself to you. And so uh, <clears throat> that was one of the cornerstones upon which this country was founded. Uh, the people that came here, if you came here from England, you were fighting a war uh, in the 17th century uh, If if one of the king's ruled you were protestant and if the other one ruled you were catholic Uh, when you got to a country like ireland you had protestants still fighting catholics and even up until the this the last century they were still waging that same war and so you can see that when the enemy gets involved in religion there's strife conflict there's uh there are lies that are perpetrated 
And there, then if the government can be seduced over into it, the government will start to make rules to uh, dictate who you are to worship and how you are to worship. And so this is what the individuals <clears throat> are fighting now. They are fighting to maintain religious freedom so that the Constitution is upheld. This is nothing that is new to our government. This is nothing that is foreign to our government. These rights, uh, the, our Constitution states that these rights don't come from the government. They come from a common creator. So the government does not give you rights. The government can only support, maintain, and enforce your rights, but your rights come from God. Amen. The right to worship, the right to have freedom to worship freely, wherever, whenever, however you desire, comes from God. And so I was reading a, a, a newsletter that I get. It's one of those, you know, kind of, you know, I call them mud, you know, like digging your feet in the mud, draggy kind of uh, things. But I, I thought it was kind of interesting the way they spelled out uh, how our, our country is now and what our country is facing as far as religious freedom, lack of freedom, liberty, and so forth. So I'll read this because I thought it was interesting how these people laid out. <clears throat> they take it from a perspective of our our present day society in this in the United States, how it is um, how it is uh, um, structured now, what's going on now is current events, and then they kind of go backwards in history and tell you what was what was intended. Uh, in our constitution and so forth and they tell you what god intends for man etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's it's just real interesting reading and i i hopefully you will get something out of it because i did i began to understand a little bit better uh so that you can deal with these things in wisdom you can understand how god gets involved and you can see some of the prayers that we pray address these very things and so sometimes you have to move certain prayers more to the forefront of your attention because of the strategies of the enemy in that area and and so forth and so on so this uh this uh newsletter is called imprimus and jasmine i found the the meaning on the inside of the newsletter so <laughs> thank you very much though but i did they have it here and it it, it means in the first place so these these concepts that they that they talk about are uh, foundational concepts to this country. They always deal with the constitutional rights and the Constitution and how it's being upheld or not upheld and why it's being eroded and what's coming against it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's uh, published by Hillsdale College. I think most of you that are familiar with that know it's a conservative uh, college. They teach conservative principles. They have um, many uh, um, uh, different kinds of services that they order. They take on interns. They encourage the interns to get involved in politics and so forth and so on so that they have, and sometimes when people need a conservative viewpoint on issues that are facing the nation, they will call upon people at this college to give them particular insight. 
So we're talking about prevailing in persecution and especially religious persecution. So this uh, this one is called Individual Community and State, comma, How to Think About Religious Freedom. So it's Individual Community and State, How to Think About Religious Freedom. He says here, the following is adapted from a lecture delivered at Hillsdale College on September 11, 2012, during a conference on the Supreme Court history and current controversies. There is a growing awareness among Americans that religious freedom in our country has come under sustained pressures. In the public square where freedom of religion meets public policy, it becomes clearer all the time that there is a high price to pay to be paid for being true to one's conscience. This is no tale of Chicken Little, although a chain of chicken sandwich restaurants based in Atlanta is part of the story. Let me give you a few examples. In our universities, those citadels of toleration, we find that toleration can be sharply limited. At the Hastings College of Law in San Francisco, the student chapter of the Christian Legal Society was denied any status on the campus because it would not abandon its requirement that members commit themselves to traditional Christian norms regarding sexual morality. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four ruling in 2010, held that the student group's rights were not violated by by a take-all-comers policy. In other words, they, they have a policy that you have to take everybody that comes in, and they found the religious people, our rights aren't violated by that. So we can be made to accept everybody, even though we have values that may conflict with theirs, we still have to accept them anyway. Following this lead, Vanderbilt University has rewritten, rewritten its student organization's policy and effectively chased every traditionally Christian student group off campus, denying them regular access to campus facilities. And at the University of Illinois, an adjunct professor of religion hired to teach a course on Catholicism was let go because a student complained about his patient explanation of the Catholic Church's natural law teachings on human sexuality. He was later restored to his teaching duties, but at the expense of the Newman Center, which that's a Christian center that's on a lot of campuses, not on the state payroll. So the state fired him, but they had to find a religious group to pay his salary so that he could stay on. In our states and localities, we see other kinds of pressures. Authorities in Washington State and Illinois have attempted to force pharmacists against their conscience to dispense morning-after pills when other pharmacists short distances away make these abortifacients available. New York City has barred church congregations and them alone from using public school buildings outside school hours. In New Mexico, a Christian wedding photographer was fined for violation of a state human rights act because she refused to take the business of a same-sex couple who claimed to want their service, her services at their civil union ceremony. 
And in Massachusetts, Illinois, San Francisco, and the District of Columbia, the adoption and fostering agencies of Catholic charities have been shuttered because they will not place children with same-sex couples. Praise God. Just shut it down. And if you want to be that stupid, shut it down as the local authorities demand. In our courts, we see the First Amendment turned on its head or simply disregarded in active hostility to the place of religion in our public life. The U.S. 7th District Circuit Court recently ruled that a Wisconsin public high school could not rent space for its annual graduation exercises in a local church, lest it be seen as endorsing religion and coercing its students to view Christianity in a positive light. In 2010, Judge Vaughn Walker of the U.S. District Court in San Francisco ruled that Proposition 8, preserving marriage in the California Constitution as the union of one man and one woman, was unconstitutional. He held that the affinity between traditional religion and the moral case against same-sex marriage was reason enough to strike down the popular referendum, and went so far as to say that religious doctrines holding homosexual acts to be sinful are in themselves a form of harm to gays and lesbians. In this, he followed the lead of the Iowa Supreme Court, which held in 2009 that the state's law restricting marriage to a man and a woman was an expression of a religious viewpoint and for that reason unconstitutional. Is everybody in here? Make sure everybody's in here. There shouldn't be one soul out, not here. Finally, we have listened to the Obama administration officials, including the president and secretary of state, speak of freedom of worship as though it marked the full extent of freedom of religion. The president famously spoke at the University of Notre Dame's commencement in 2009, but in that speech he treated religious opinions that disagree with his views on abortion and other social issues as fundamentally irrational and thus to be relegated to the private sphere and ruled out of order in our public debates. Having succeeded in persuading Congress to repeal the don't ask, don't tell policy for the military, the administration has been strongly opposed to legislation that would protect the conscience rights of chaplains and other servicemen and women who continue to hold and to express the view on religious grounds that sexual relations are morally permitted only in a marriage between a man and a woman. In the recent term of the Supreme Court, the administration's lawyers took the position that there should be no ministerial exception on religious freedom grounds. In other words, if you don't want to cooperate with that that same-sex thing, you can't be exempt because your religion tells you it's wrong. They just make everybody do what they want them to do. He says... For employers such as religious schools from federal and anti-discrimination laws, church schools and other religious institutions, they argued, 
have only as much protection as non-religious groups do on freedom of association grounds as though the religion clause of the First Amendment added no ground whatsoever for a unique religious freedom claim. In other words, if you claim freedom uh, to practice your religion like the First Amendment says you have, they say that that doesn't really mean anything if you're violating their rules as far as that's concerned. See, It says, in the best religious freedom news of the year, the administration lost this case in a nine this case nine to zero in the Supreme Court, which held that the Obama Justice Department's view was remarkable, untenable, and hard to square with the text of the First Amendment itself. Well, somebody's got a brain. And, of course, there is the infamous Health and Human Services contraception mandate, the cause of the most pointed confrontation in recent memory between a presidential administration and major figures in America's religious communities. Under the HHS mandate, an administrative rule authorized by the 2010 Affordable Care Act Every employer with more than 50 employees must provide group health insurance that includes in the category of preventive medicine for women, no-cost coverage of sterilization services, and FDA-approved prescription contraceptives, including those that are better understood as abortifacients because they they act to destroy embryos rather than merely prevent conception. A narrow exemption was included for religious employers that are nonprofit, exist to inculcate religious values, and primarily employ and serve members of their own religious community. So what they're saying is that if you're a nonprofit and you exist to primarily employ and serve members of your own religious community, that, that limits it to a church. That's it. So if you're a Christian school, high school, college, hospital, whatever, then you, you're not covered. You've you got to go along with what the government says. This meant that while churches and other houses of worship would be exempted, countless religious schools, universities, hospitals, and charitable institutions would not. Under pressure, the administration has promised a future, quote, accommodation for a broader range of religious institutions with an ill-defined safe harbor until the new arrangement becomes effective in August 2010. That's what the devil does. He just tells you, well, you can do that for a minute, and then he go cook up something else to see if he can lock you down again. At that time, these institutions' employees will, would still be entitled to the same preventive services, but with insurers rather than employers responsible for the cost. So the religious institution still has to cover that in some way. You can't say no to it in other other words. Okay, we won't make you pay for it. We'll make the insurer pay for it, but you still got to let it happen, no matter what you think about it. So some religious institutions, such as the University of Notre Dame, are self-insured for their employee health plans, and there is no sign yet regarding how their situation could be addressed. So they're the employer and the insurer. So what do you do for them? He says, and who can be fooled by the promise that insurance companies rather than employers are paying for the coverage and that employers will somehow have clean hands 
in a three-corner contractual relationship in which these services are guaranteed. So what they're saying here is we don't care about what you think about it. Your conscience, does it, your morals, that doesn't mean anything. We're in control and we're saying you have to provide this. It is no wonder that the U.S. Catholic bishops formed an ad hoc committee for religious liberty last year and that they published a major statement on religious freedom in March and that they organized a fourth night for freedom to pray for religious liberty in June and July. And I think we ought to do that. We'll we'll get our prayers together, and in June and July, when they're praying, we'll be in agreement with them to break this thing down. Because, see, right now, amen. See, you got to be whoever's on the Lord's side. They're not against us. They're for us. So we just go up. If they say that's what they're going to do, then we'll submit and we'll do that, too. Recognizing the threat to themselves as well, particularly in the mandated coverage of abortifacient pharmaceuticals, that's like that morning after pill. A number of evangelical Protestant institutions have joined in the litigation against them. See, this is how God gets his people to get along. You make the devil so big you can't afford to fight among yourselves and so you're able to undergird each other and work together like you're supposed to protestant institutions have joined in the litigation against the hhs mandate while jewish mormon and muslim leaders have joined in formal protests so they're not in the lawsuit but they are formally protesting the government's intervention here there are at last count 28 separate lawsuits pending in federal courts around the country involving more than 80 separate plaintiffs Perhaps the most interesting case involves not a religious school, hospital, or charity, but Hercules Industries of Colorado. This is a private company that makes heating and air conditioning equipment. Its sole owners are the Newlands, a family of Catholics who object to providing the mandated coverage to their employees against the dictates of their conscience as informed by their faith. The argument of the Obama Justice Department in the case is astonishing. It is that no one can claim on behalf of an incorporated business he owns any right of religious freedom or conscience get, that can trump a requirement of the law. So in other words, we don't care if you are a Catholic. You're incorporated And that means that we have control over you and you have no say over your own business that you started. And you take care of and you employ people and you're able to provide a living for people. And that morality probably helped you get there, but we don't care about that. All we care about is that we see a way that we can take something away from you if you don't do what we tell you to do. It says, the members of the Newland family may have religious scruples, but the business they own cannot be conducted in accordance with those scruples. Once individuals opt for incorporation of a business, they lose the freedom of religion so far as the actions of the corporation are concerned. 
Luckily, a federal judge in Colorado has entered a preliminary injunction barring enforcement of the HHS mandate against Hercules Industries while litigation continues. But the all-out care, imagine having to spend your money defending something that just, but the all-out character of the administration's disregard for claims of conscience is a grave portent of things to come. So it's when your government disregards your basic right to do things by the dictates of your own conscience, there's something wrong, he's saying. What is the cause of these pressures on freedom of religion and conscience? And how can we respond in the spirit of renewed commitment to principles of religious liberty? So you see, these people don't give up. They're looking for strategies, how to fight back and hold on to what we're guaranteed by the Constitution. In truth and charity, we must give those responsible for the policies I've described the benefit of the doubt as acting on some vision of the good. So this guy is saying, you know, don't jump to the conclusion that these are evil people, meaning evil things. They must think they're after something that's going to be good for somebody for them to jump up and do this. Their methods are pathetic, though, but that's another story. He says, he says, so giving them the benefit of the doubt, we'll see if there's something good in what they're trying to promote here. He said, those in charge of our universities, our state and local governments, our courts, and the Obama administration seem to be animated by a desire to serve the goal of women's health as they understand it or to advance a certain view of freedom of equality. So they're, they feel that they're doing something to promote women's health. You know, that's the good they see in it. They think of electoral and legislative victories as vindicating the rightness of their views. So when they win an election or something, they say, oh, well, people must think what we're saying here is right. They must want this. And they often see the pushback that results as a failure to understand something obviously just. So they think people who want to hold on to their religious views and ideas and exercise that in all areas of their life, we're just missing the point somehow. We haven't really come around. We just don't understand this yet. Hence, the Obama administration's rhetoric about a war on women expresses a real opinion on the part of the president and his supporters that the equal position and basic health of women in American society are served by a mandate that burdens all but the smallest employers and the most narrowly defined institutions of worship with the legal obligation to provide free contraceptives, abortifacient drugs, and sterilization services. But while they may seek a certain good, as they understand it, they fail to grasp the perspective of the religious dissent in their policy, that their policies generate. There is a blundering impatience on the part of the secular state and the secular elites in charge of it whenever countervailing claims are made in the name of religious conscience, the integrity of religious institutions, or the foundational character of religious communities as part of American civil society. There is a characteristic failure to perceive the legitimate contribution of religion to public discourse. So they don't think 
that our ideas are number one valuable. They're not modern. They're not. They don't. We don't contribute anything. Is what they believe when they make their argument. Thus, our predicament drives us back to first things. Number one, to the necessity of thinking through from the beginning the ground of religious freedom as an individual right. The relation of the individual believer to his fellows in a naturally formed community and the way in which these individuals and their organic relationships of family, church, and other spontaneous expressions of civil society are responsible for creating the state of their mutual consent. In other words, this man is arguing that our religious position is foundational to everything else that goes in society and that others enjoy these things too based on what we believe is right. You see, if, if we didn't contribute, say for instance, if churches didn't allow the free use of their facilities to groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and, and narco- all these places, you know, these organizations that can get free space in a church. Most churches will say, well, we won't charge you anything. You want to have a support group here? We'll let you have a support group. In other words, the, the government doesn't see that as being important. What we do there is not important. You know, we, we do those things based on our belief that if a person needs help, we're a helping institution and we don't draw the line on what kind of help that's offered. We want to foster anything that helps the human being to be a whole human being. But we can do that. But what our opinion is not important when it comes to enforcing the morality that causes us to extend that love out to other people. See what I'm saying? We, you know, we're not important. Our views are, it's old fashioned. You're not understanding our point. Our point is a greater point than your point. Even though your belief system has caused you to help decrease the, the, you know, uh, delinquency rate in certain cities. Many churches uh, allow um, after school recreation, tutoring, boys and girls clubs. We do it not because we're so involved in education, but morally we feel an obligation to people who are disadvantaged and can't provide those things for themselves. That's part of our belief system. See, it's part of what we believe. But see, when it comes to us being able to express that across the board, that wants to be stifled. See, so he says. I have twin touchstones for for the reflections that follow the memorial of remonstrance against religious assessments, which was addressed by James Madison to the Virginia General Assembly in 1785 and helped defeat a bill to spend tax dollars on the support of clergy and Dignatus Humani, the Declaration of Religious Freedom of the Second Vatican Council of 1965. These two brief documents written under such different circumstances, 180 years apart, are not, of course, in perfect accord in every point, but they have something in common in the way they ground religious freedom in axiomatic reflections on the human condition, in the priority they place on religious obligations as making a higher claim on our attention than political obligations. So these two documents talk, stress that our claim on religious grounds is higher than any political claim that may come in our lives, not the reverse. 
So what the government is now saying is that the political claim trumps the religious claim. And what these people are saying is that the religious claim is grounded and fundamental, so fundamental that it is higher than the political claim in every way. So he says here, in the priority they place on religious obligations as making a higher claim on our attention than political obligations and in the way they elaborate the limits of political authority. Both Madison and the authors of Dignatus Humani begin with reflections on the individual human person and his relationship to God. Not organized religion, but the individual and how he relates to God. Religious belief and devotion are not anthropological curiosities or historical relics. That's what they want you to think. It's just you're old fashioned. That's been done away with. You know, we have something new here. Yours is, is no good anymore. Religious belief and devotion. But he said, but they are basic to the human experience. Natural to us in the exercise of our most human faculties. Those of the mind. And religious belief impresses itself directly on the mind in such a way that we can speak of it as not altogether voluntary. So he says religious belief impresses itself directly on the mind in such a way that we cannot speak of it as altogether voluntary. Not a matter of willing choice, but of compulsion in light of the evidence that both reason and revelation place before us. So they say it's basic in everybody to want to contact God. That's what that's saying. He said, thus Madison speaks of religious conscience as an inalienable right. He said, you can't take that no more than you can take somebody's spirit, soul, or mind away. You can't take their right to just reach up and worship God. That's just basic and individual and human. He said the same expression used for our most basic natural rights in the Declaration of Independence because the opinions of men depending only on the evidence contemplated by their own minds cannot follow the dictates of other men. In other words, just because you think something, it doesn't mean that somebody else is going to follow it because you think it. But it has to come as a matter of conscience to the individual, and that's what forms a foundation for a religion or a set of beliefs or anything like that. He, said, he says here, likewise in Dignatus Humani, which grounds religious freedom in the very dignity of the human person, the truth cannot impose itself except by virtue of its own truth. So truth cannot impose itself on anybody except by virtue of its own truth. Now, who does that sound like but God? You got me? He validates himself. It is said that the Bible is the only book that validates itself. It's his own witness. It's his own witness. The the, the, uh, historical historians tend to... Uh, feel that if a a piece of information is relevant, it has to appear spoken of by at least two to three witnesses. Now, where'd that idea come from? So, for instance, if we want to say Julius Caesar was real, we can't have just 
you know, say like uh, who was a writer during that time, Cicero or somebody like that, saying Julius Caesar was alive. But you got to have Cicero and two other people saying Julius Caesar is a real person before we say that Caesar really existed. But the Bible is the only book that validates itself that way. Nobody ever disputes the validity of the truth in the Bible because it is the only book that validates. It witnesses two and three witnesses on its own accord. So truth comes on it. It says he says for for he says here the truth cannot impose itself except by virtue of its own truth. So it has to be true inside and out before it can impose itself and establish itself as truth. He says also, and it makes its entrance into the mind at once quietly and with power. So when truth is spoken, nobody can refute it. And it doesn't have to be forced on anybody. He says it makes its way quietly into your mind and with power, which means that you understand that it's true. So this is not something that anybody's some dictator is trying to brainwash you into or you can be talked out of. Truth is that way. It validates itself by virtue of itself. And it goes into your mind and you accept it because it comes with the power of validity inside of it. James Madison said that. A political person. Huh? He said, he said, the right of conscience then is a right not to be compelled to speak or act as though what one knows to be true is actually false. Huh? So the right of your conscience is a right not to be compelled to speak or act as though what one knows to be true is actually false. The right of conscience is a right for us not to be compelled to believe or act in a way that what we know to not be true is true. In other words, if you, they can't make you say abortion is right when you know in your conscience it's not right. They can't compel you to think or act in a way. And they say for one has a duty to truth. You got a responsibility to what's true. And no higher duty than to the truth about the highest thing. So when you know the truth about God, you have a duty to hold on to that truth. You got a duty to speak that truth. And you got a duty to not let go of that truth. He said if you have truth about the highest thing, then you have a high obligation to hold on to that. You can let go of truth in some things that are small, but when you have truth on the highest thing, you're obligated to hold on to that. He says, as Madison goes on to say, it is the duty of every man to render to the creator such homage and such as only as he believes to be acceptable to him. So what you believe is acceptable to God, that's your duty to carry that out. If you believe that God wants you to to not uh, foster abortion and condone abortion, you have an obligation to him. 
not to violate. That's your duty. That's your first duty to him. And that's how you honor him. That's how you pay homage to him. He says you have to he says it is the duty of every man to render to the creator capital C such homage as and and such as only as he believes to be acceptable to him. So what do you believe God is telling you that's right according to what you know about God and your relationship with him? You got you got a duty to God to hold on to that. This goes beyond some law somewhere. You see, this has nothing to do with the government in which you live or the country. It has nothing to do with that. This is a personal thing between the person and God. And he said this duty is precedent both in order of time and degree of obligation to the claims of civil society. In other words, this trumps whatever your civil society. This is this takes precedent over that. Similarly, Dignatus describes religious freedom as something, quote, men demand as necessary to fulfill their duty to worship God. So we demand religious freedom because it's something necessary for us to fulfill our duty to worship God. We have a duty to worship him. It's not an option. It's not something you do on your occasional days off. And, you know, that's why I say if you really want to be in church, God will get you here. He'll put you here. You don't have to worry about what your boss says or I can't get weekends off. You can get anything you want. Because this is between personal, between you and God. This had nothing to do with your boss. He was God before your boss was your boss. And he'll be God after that relationship is over too. And this worship, and, and this worship is the means by which me, we may come to God, the end and the purpose of life. So God is the beginning and the purpose of your life. This is the means by which we do that. It's through freedom of worship. He said, this puts before us as our end what Madison places before us as our beginning. Our freedom to fulfill our duty to God must be untrammeled because that duty is both first and last for us it is alpha and the omega fleshing out this common teaching dignatus continues the exercise of religion of its very nature consists above all else in those internal voluntary and free acts whereby man sets the course of his life directly toward god so this has nothing to do with government's This is when you exercise freedom of religion, you set your course directly toward God. Nobody interfering with that. Directly toward God. Nobody interfering with that. Directly toward God. Nobody interfering with that. No merely human power can either command nor prohibit this, this, uh, and any, prohibit acts of this kind. So he said this is beyond the realm of anybody's human power to stop this. A human being can't relegate this. When you get on your your knees in your bedroom before God, you don't ask anybody if you can do that. You don't call somebody up and you don't call your congressman and ask permission if you can get on your knees and talk to God. You talk to God. He says, how dare the government interfere with something so highly personal to people? 
He says, as Madison puts it, religion is wholly exempt from the cognizance of political authority. In other words, when you worship God, ain't nothing new. You don't think about Obamacare. You don't think about contraceptives. You don't think about breaking the law. All you think about is what goes on between you and your creator. Perhaps not surprisingly, Dignatus had more than Madison to say about the fact that individuals do not practice their religion as a solitary act. So you may have worship between you and God only, but then there's the larger religious community. And this is God's plan. This isn't man's plan. This is God's plan. And he says, it says here, Dignatus refers to the social nature of man. And the natural consequence that he should profess his religion in community. So when we receive Christ, we make the confession. We are drawn into a fellowship. We're drawn into a communion or community with other believers. It follows that the immunity from coercion in matters of religious that men enjoy as individuals is also to be recognized as their right when they act in community. So if you have the right to worship God privately and it's just between you and God, and that's a basic fundamental human right, that extends also when you gather together with a congregation to worship God. So if it's freedom, if it's individual freedom, when you worship him, when more of you get together on common ground, it's a collective individual freedom. It's not something that's different from that. And he says the vitality of faith comes in its communal character in the individual's fellowship with others whose viewpoints support, inform and refine his own. So in other words, you have the right If you worship God and you feel that you want to be in a community with others of similar faith, when you get together, you support, encourage, and refine each other's beliefs. And that's totally normal. He says, Dignatus treats at length the freedom of religious communities to meet and to organize, to teach and to witness to their faith. To control their own internal affairs, to undertake educational, cultural, charitable, and social efforts as they see fit. This receives less attention from the more individualistic Madison, yet he implicitly agrees, assuming the existence of what he later called the multiplicity of sects or groups and insisting on a on a politics of equal freedom for all religious communities with their state, neither invading the equal rights of any group nor suffering any group to invade those of another. So the government is there to protect your right as an individual and as a group to exercise your worship of God. Madison's memorial, again, not surprisingly, contains more of the political science than Dignatus. It carries us back to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, which move from our natural equality as created beings to our possession of rights inextricably bound up with our nature and bestowed upon us by the creator to the purpose of foundation of government made by us to serve rather than frustrate our natural equality and liberty. So we as individuals, when we get together and form a community and we form a government, we form, we the people 
form the government to serve us in a way that helps us exercise our individual liberties, not take them away. Amen. Civil society. It says here the community. Let me see. Madison carefully employs the phrase civil society to identify the whole community. The community of communities made up of families, churches, and all sorts of organic human relations that is responsible for authorizing and limiting political authority. So when the religious and the secular and all the communities get together and form government, then they, that collective group of people, so then a religion doesn't form a government like you see Muslims do. You got me? Individuals get together from all facets. You know, the the atheists and the whatever, whatever, they get in there too. And we decide on the government that we want to govern all of us. And it says civil society is, let me see. Madison carefully employs the phrase civil society to identify the whole community, the community of communities made up. So it's a big community made of smaller communities made up of families, churches and all sorts of organic human relations that is responsible for authorizing and limiting political authority. Civil society is the earthly sovereign. Civil society. Your states and your federal and all those levels of government, those are earthly sovereigns. Overall, there remains the universal sovereign to whom all must answer. Before any man can be considered as a member of a civil society, he must be considered as a subject of the governor of the universe. For this reason, Madison says, religion is exempt from the authority of the society at large. In other words, because God is the sovereign government overall and everything else is subordinate to him, nobody can interfere with the exercise of an individual's relationship with the sovereign who is above everything. Much more so must it be be exempt from the political authority of the government of the government that society creates. The priority of individual rights and of the claims of organic communities also permeates dignitas, which describes the common welfare of society as consisting chiefly in the protection of rights and in the performance of duties of the human person. Those duties are experienced and expressed in religious communities. So it is imperative that the right of all citizens and religious communities to religious freedom should be recognized and made effective in practice. What what are we to take away from these essential reflections on the nature and requirements of religious freedom? First, Human beings are by nature truth seekers and truth responders. Human beings by nature are truth seekers and truth responders. We want to know what's real. Huh? Remember the, uh, what was that, um, that program? Um, oh shoot, I could, it's, the truth is out there somewhere. Remember that? The, it doesn't come on anymore, it's on in reruns. Um, huh? 
Yeah, X-Files. Yeah, yeah. Them. The truth is out there somewhere. You know, everybody's looking for that. Amen. And so it says and they are we are by nature. God put that in us. Truth seekers and truth responders. Why? Because when you seek truth, you'll find God. He wants us to find him. If we are to live fully integrated lives, making our relationship to the truth a central part of our being and our character, then we must respond to the truth as we understand it and in, in, in order our lives around it. I don't care who it is. You know, if, if you start teaching your children right and wrong, they see some truth there and they'll respond to it and they'll repeat the very thing you say. Sometimes you'll be, you know, violating your own rule that you've told them and they'll remind you, Mommy, you can't do that. You so and so and such and such. huh? So we are truth seekers and truth responders. And we must understand truth and order our lives around it. You just can't leave it out there and do nothing with it. Just like, you know, some of us tried to resist God for years. We were witness to. We were done everything we took and we still try to read and then one day we just caved in and had you know what i gotta do something with this jesus i gotta do something with this truth so you have to order your life around it second thanks to the infallible character of our minds we grasp the truth in common with some of our fellows and differently from others so you You'll be able to see eye to eye with somebody on some things and differ with them on others. Sometimes you'll see people in the word the same way, just on the word only and very different in other areas of their life. So the infallible character of our minds, we grasp the truth in common with some of our fellows and differently from others. But it does not follow from our conviction of the truth shared with others that we who agree acquire the right to compel others who disagree. See, just because you you agree with some people and you consider yourselves to be right, you picked up some truth somewhere. You have no right because of what you believe to compel others. See, compelling means that they must do it in spite of whether they believe or not. See, we run into that problem in the church. You know, sometimes you'll preach and and somebody will say, well, I want you to pray with me and agree with me and so and so and such and such. And and you think they're in agreement. They go and do something totally opposite. Huh? You can't compel them. They they follow their own conscience, their own heart, their own dictates, whatever. You know, they just that's just the way it is. And so, you know, as a minister, you just have to sit back, scratch your head, and go on, you know, to the next thing and say, well, maybe they get it when it comes around again, you know, something like that. So he says here, it does not follow from our conviction of the truth shared with others. In other words, whether it's government, church, or anybody else. If you feel that you have truth in whatever it is that you believe, you have no right to compel others to receive it, no matter how large a group you have following you. You got me? Hitler did that. He just brainwashed a bunch of people, and pretty soon he had pretty much taken over Europe. All he did was announce that he, he, he sent pamphlets. He would have planes to fly over cities. He did it over London. 
they they dropped millions of pamphlets and let those people know, told those people they had uh, another week to live. We're going to come and bomb you on such and such a day. Run for your lives kind of thing. That's how compelling ideas can get when people really want to force them on others. Got me? So he says, it does not follow from our conviction of the truth shared with others that we who agree acquire the right to compel others who disagree. So if you disagree, we have no right to compel you to agree. He said, persuade, yes, compel, no. So you have a right to free speech. You can speak your piece and you can say what you believe, but you can't force faith on another individual. You can't force compliance on somebody who does not internally agree with what your position is. Third, religious communities form an essential element in the civil societies formed by men. They are as natural and as organic as families. Their integrity and freedom come near to being as important as that of of the individuals of which they are composed. So the right of a church or an organization, a religious organization to exist and to carry on worship or whatever they do, that's as fundamental as the individual's right is because it's nothing more than a collection of individuals is that community. And he says, <clears throat> he says, uh, fourth, the power of government necessary as it is to maintaining a shared moral order is the creature and not the creator of men's rights. So your government is not the creator of your rights. It is the creature, not the creator. So it's a created thing in itself. It's not the originator of everything because governments come and go. You can be a government one day and a dictator come in and start killing up everybody and intimidate and run people out. And it's something else tomorrow. So they don't create anything. They are a created thing. He says it is the creature and not the creator of men's rights and the servant, not the master of our private relations and our families and religious communities. In other words, government is to serve the people. To exercise freely their God-given rights, not the reverse. He says, this is not to say that the government may never inquire into whether a claim of religious conviction is sincere. In other words, we have people who, typical of that, I think, is a conscientious objector. Say, if there's a draft, say, if we really had a serious war. You know, and we needed more personnel and you had to draft them. The government always allowed for people whose conscience did not allow them to kill to be exempt from that. But you couldn't just come up as an individual and say, well, I'm I'm a whatever religion. I made it up myself. And you know what I'm saying? The government can challenge and say, now you just made that up because you and so what they'll do oftentimes is they will honor uh, traditional types of like the Amish or one that, that don't, you know, don't go to war or something like that. The, the Bible does not prohibit killing in times of war. You see that yourself in the word of God. But they misinterpret the, the uh, commandment that says thou shalt not commit murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill. 
It says thou shalt not commit murder because God in, in his law ordered certain people to be killed. Amen. And so killing in itself is not wrong. It's why you do it. And so if you the shedding of innocent blood, that's the committing of murder, has always been forbidden by God. But the government does recognize traditional some traditional religions have that built into their doctrine that they don't allow their their people to go off to war. And so it says the government can inquire into whether a claim of religious conviction is sincere. Nor must the state yield entirely to every sincerely presented claim. In the words of Dignatus, the objective moral order that calls for good order and true justice will trump claims that threaten the public peace or the rights of others. So anything that that is an objective moral order that calls for good order and true justice will trump claims that threaten the public peace or the rights of others. So if your peace is disturbed because the government is making you provide abortion after pills and pay for that for your people, that trumps any other claim the government might have to you. You understand what I'm saying? You have the right to exercise the dictates of your conscience over the government imposing something on you. But fifth, short of such cases, the state should respect, honor, and even foster the role of religious community communities and institutions as essential contributors to civil society churches are essential because they contribute to civil society in crucial respects they are expressions of something still more basic to the flourishing of the human personality than is the political order itself see the political order is subject to change But the things that are basic and stable will never change in a human being, and that is your right to worship God. The modern secular state errs in viewing religious communities as subordinate. See, The government makes an error when they view religious communities as subordinate to them, whether as handmaidens of government, rivals for people's allegiance, or as mere interest groups in elections and public policy debates. Subordination of the religious to the political tends to sever in the minds of policymakers and judges the link between individuals and the various expressions of religious community that enrich their understanding of the truth, animate their peaceful encounters with their fellow citizens who have different understandings, and inform the reasonable basis of our objective moral order. We can see many of these problems in the HHS contraception mandate. In its administrative rulemaking, the Obama administration presumes to define what forms of religious community are religious enough to merit the state's definition of religious employer. So they're trying to tell you, they're trying to dictate the degree of what they, how respect they're going to give you as a religious community. <clears throat> and thus to qualify as a general claimant of an institutional conscience. Even its promised accommodation would treat religious colleges, hospitals, and charitable ministries as second-class religious institutions. 
General religion, genuine religion, it seems to say, is merely Sabbath keeping by individuals who attend the church of their choosing. And a family like the Newlands, insofar as it is engaged in a business, is utterly subject to the plenary power of the state. The created gift of the Newland family, their business enterprise, does not fully belong to them to be governed by their conscience. Their entrepreneurship must be severed from their faith, as though they can be Catholics only on, in church on Sunday. And the Obama Justice Department has the nerve to argue that the Newlands are, quote, imposing their religion on their employees. Here we see one of the characteristic moves of the modern secular state, the effort to push the vital institutions of civil society aside. Here we see one of the characteristic moves of the modern secular state, the effort to push the vital institutions of civil society aside, in this case, its religious communities, and the unique role they play in the lives of citizens. Richard John Newhouse understood this nearly 30 years ago in the Naked Public Square. Quote, once religion is reduced to nothing more than privatized conscience, the public square has only two actors in it, the state and the individual. So what it does, let me tell you what he's saying it does. Once the state removes religion out of importance in a person's life, they have stripped you down to where it's only you, the little bitty John John Smith, fighting the great behemoth government. See, they when you strip you of your religious significance and strip you of your relationship with God, then there's no longer God in the arena with you fighting for you against an oppressive government but it's just you and the government now and so what the 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 administrations over the years are tending to do is to push religion back so far as to strip us of it so then it's only us confronting the state and we have no help from god to help us keep our individuality he says here and he added that a perverse notion of the disestablishment of religion leads to establishment as the state as church because people are going to worship something so once you strip god away from them then they have nothing to worship but the state now where have we seen this before that's what communism is the state is god The state is what you worship. We have no churches. You can't go to your house of worship. You can only worship the state. And so you obey the state. You pay the state. They give you a little bit and you get what you get. But if they strip you of God, then there's only two people in the arena, you against the government. At one of this summer's national political conventions, we heard the startling statement that, quote, government is the only thing we all belong to. Government is the only thing we all belong to. In that understanding, the civil society and the communities to which government is responsible are left out. As a crotchety old Hollywood actor observed at the other convention. (laughs) You know who that was, don't you? Yeah. 
Clint Eastwood talking to the empty chair. Quote, we own this country. Politicians are employees of ours. He did not have religious freedom in mind, so as far as I can tell, but his principle is sound for our purposes. Individuals of faith joined in communities of faith, forming a civil society imbued with the many faiths of those many communities own this country. The state's authority comes from us, and its power, the power of our elected employees, cannot be greater than what we can rightfully give it. We cannot give the state power over the conscience of men and women because we do not ourselves have any right to come between God and our fellow citizens. The sooner our elected employees remember these foundational truths, the sooner we may begin to recover a healthy notion of religious freedom. Yeah finally got through amen so that help you at all you understand what's going on politically you understand what's going on with the principalities and powers and so this isn't this isn't peculiar to just one administration i think they're addressing uh, modern um you know modern events or current events as they unfold but this is something that has has gone into government's Forever. Governments seek to gain more power. They seek to gain more control. People talk about the nanny state, that that people are looking for the government to care for them from the cradle to the grave while human beings waste away with with nothing to do or very little to do, accomplishing very little, never accomplishing their purpose for being here on earth. The only the biggest threat to that, though, is the church. Because the church is where you learn who God is, and from God comes your purpose. From God comes your desire to get out and work and accomplish and do and create and be all that you can be. That comes from God. And so when you see governments challenging the place of God in human beings' lives, there is a real threat there. Because they are trying to strip us from the one thing that stands between them in total control over all humanity. And that is God. So in all things, hold on to God. Don't let go of God. Because he, if we're stripped of God, then the only thing that's between, that's in the arena is us in the big government, in the big state. And you're, you're going to be powerless to fight them without being able to call upon God. So I found our prayer on protection against persecution. And I thought what we would do would be to incorporate uh, some understanding of the oppressive power sometimes of government when it begins to strip people of their religious freedom, their freedom to worship, basic human freedoms. So government governments often persecute the righteous. You saw that during the when uh, from the first time God called the people when He called Moses to bring His people out of Egypt. You saw government. Uh, oppressing people and the one thing that God told Pharaoh let my people go so they can worship me not so they can prosper not so they can have money but so that they can worship me and so you'll see governments oppressing people whenever they divide you from your worship for instance when when I was growing up shopping malls were closed on Sunday 
you know, Saturday was a lay. They were six days a week. And now we see every day is the same. So when you stop honoring the Sabbath and you see companies that do that, they're closed on Sunday. Oh, they get persecuted. Look at them. They doing this and they don't have people working. They'll let their people work and they tell you can't work on Sunday. It's always presented in a negative light when really they're just obeying their conscience toward God. See, their their conscience toward God. So you need to know that religious spirits are probably the oldest, one of the more ancient of all spirits, because they always give man a false way to to um, worship the real, true, and living God. So religion is tolerated, but true worship is not. And you'll see any time there's a revival in history or there's an outpouring of God's spirit, you'll see the enemy comes in to quash it. And oftentimes he will bring religion in. For instance, in the the, uh, charismatic revival of the 50s, 60s and 70s, we saw a lot of uh, Eastern philosophy come in and eastern influences coming into religion so that now there is new age religion which incorporates all of these things you know you got a little christianity oh, i'm a christian I'm, I'm a child of god and then they go and chant somewhere or they uh, have buddhas all over the house or something like that so you'll see religion come and ride in to pervert true relationship with god to dilute it so that people don't have that pure relationship with God. And purity is where the power is. And it's all to keep people from him being empowered by God. So that when you're divorced from the God that created you. When you're divorced from him. You have to accept anybody's idea about your worth. When you come to Christ you have a true identity. And you know who you are and you know what you're worth. And see, that's what the devil hates. I don't care if it's governmental devil. I don't care if it's religious devil, any kind of devil. The devil hates that. And so in order to pacify human beings, oftentimes the enemy will come in with a a form of godliness, but he won't let the power in. The minute the power comes in, it'll start to get hit against, persecuted, and all of those things. So our prayers to prevent uh, for protection against persecution should include prayers to keep our relationships pure. That we don't accept any uh, substitutes, that we don't accept any counterfeits, that we don't accept any perversions of God's word. No matter what it costs us, we need to stand up and declare God's words exactly as it is written. That's why Jesus always said how it was written because he knew men were prone to misquote, misinterpret, water down, pervert, twist, and manipulate the word so that it wasn't what God intended from the beginning. And so we have to be careful about attempts to manipulate and pervert the truth when we're talking about protecting ourselves against persecution. The religion feeds on man's perverse fear of God. You know, it's a, an angry God and he's never satisfied with you. That's what religion makes you think. And so when you're always trying to please God and always trying to make sure you're okay with God, you know that there's some religion involved. And so you have to make sure that your relationship is based on faith in what Jesus Christ has done in that alone. Faith in the atonement. Not your good works, even though that's good. It's better be good than bad. But that does, that does not earn you anything 
with the living God. It's, he's provided everything. So your acceptance of his provision, it's what keeps your, your relationship pure and keeps your belief pure. True seekers will find the true God. That's just true, period. So you need to know that when people seek God, they will find the truth. And then the believer steps in to declare and decree the truth of God's word to the the seeker. And so as long as people are seeking God, we have an obligation to give them the truth no matter what the government says. Now, this may happen in your job. This may happen in in or outside of church. This may happen on a street corner. This may happen anywhere. But you have an obligation when somebody's seeking truth to speak that truth as you know it. So then nobody can come between that fundamental relationship between you and God. And you got to know that's a protected relationship. God is not going to see you out on the street starving without income. Because you spoke the truth for him. He's not going to see that. You'll see that you prevail against persecution if you will just follow these basic things about, you know, when people are seeking truth and you know truth, you have an obligation through God to express that truth. And that's just the way it is. So no government can interfere with that. No government can stop that. That's your basic. That's a basic right. Your basic relationship with God. That's that has to be protected. You got to know that's protected and nobody can pervert that. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can see stop you from doing that. God has left a roadmap or a way to find him. And that is Jesus Christ. So if you get people on that road. Then they'll be able to find the Lord. And that's how you prevail over persecution. You keep giving more of what God has given you. Huh? That's all you do. That's how you prevail. Jesus confirms the Bible, God's word to man. And once you know God is confirming you, then you prevail over persecution. Hmm? What did the apostles say when they were told not to pray in the name of Jesus? There's a movement now to make people not pray in the name of Jesus. Did you know that? Huh? And so that's been done before. But what did the apostles say? Lord, give us more boldness. Don't let us get scared. Don't let us punk out on you. Let us stand strong for you and not bend to Caesar, not bow to him, because we know that when we stand with you, we will prevail over this persecution. See, the only thing to do when you're persecuted is stand on your relationship with God and fight back. You keep giving it to the devil. You keep stealing more from him. So as the government uh, continues to press and put more laws to push religion out of things, you stand stronger in your church, in your individual things, and in all the things. We have never, I've never seen so much financial baloney hit us at one time. You know, both, both buses needing everything. You know, and, and, and if somebody writes you the ministry a check, you think clears up the bill for the conference in $10,000 bounces. We never had bouncing of anything. If people gave us something, it was good. 
You see, we got the bus back and somebody's torn off the miracle and in, in healing and miracle sign. Uh, Howard was saying, I think a wind caught it. I said, not a devil caught that because somebody had to pull on that real hard to get that sign off of there because it's been on there forever. And so we have to understand that there's this attack thing that's come like it never had before. We had a, a good meetings and the ministers that were taking the offerings, one of them never took an offering. And the other one who took the offering was so confused and combobbly, I said, Lord, there's something wrong here. Now, this just does not happen to us. But I know that at the same time the enemy is coming in like a flood, God is performing miracles for us. We had a bus donated to us so we didn't have to buy a motor and all those kinds of things. And so God will prevail. But I'm telling you, this thing is coming to damage, hurt, and crush true ministry and true power in God it's coming to stop the power of God so that means we have to be bolder more forceful more compelling you know we we invite people to uh, you know friends and family day and if they say no we're polite and we back off you need to just press in you be bolder, more forceful, say, no, nah, you're coming to church. This is good for you. You need to be here. We need to do it like we did it in the old days. Compel men to come and hear the truth of God's word. Once they hear, then they can see and, and they can accept or not accept. But if they've never heard God's word, they need to hear God's word. Amen. And so what we do to counteract the persecution is we encounter a stronger thrusting forward into the things of God, into the purpose of God. Just go forward and do everything God wants us to do. We need to be on the phone triple time, inviting people to the healing school. Come because the power of God is there to heal you. Have you laid hands on anybody? You're not sick. You can lay hands on your family members. Come and hear and be taught these things so that God can use you because he wants to use you. And so when we see the enemy pressing in on us, the wrong thing to do is to back up and try to figure out a way to be more tactful, more diplomatic, nicer, kinder, whatever you need, more boldness. You need to thrust forward and you need to go in a way that you know you're prevailing over the opposition. Because I'm telling you, the ones that won't stand for God are not going to make it. I don't care how big a church they have and how many people they have and how big a um, a list they have, mailing list they have. If they start to compromise and they get on national television and start making up stories about what God thinks about homosexuals, same-sex marriage, I don't care what it is, they're going down. And you don't want to be a part of that going down too. You want to be adamant. You want to be like a stone. You want to stand on what you know. And understand that no government, no nothing can separate you from the love of God. Amen. Cannot separate you from his love. It can't separate you from God. It can't separate you from God. It can't separate you from God. Cannot separate you from God. So whatever comes, you hold on to God. He'll be there for you. Long after, listen, people, everybody in, in England was scared of, of Hitler except Winston Churchill. And he told them over and over again, you know, even before Hitler started, he said, there's a man over in Germany and he's talking like he really means this. 
And there will come a day when we will have to fight him. Nobody believed him at the time. But there sure came a day. But he was prepared. You know why? Because he made up his mind way back then when they were, everybody was laughing at the threat that Hitler was. He made up his mind he wasn't going down. And he made up his mind and he stayed with whatever he needed to stay with. And he did not go down. And England didn't go down. It's still here, there, and Hitler's gone. And so if you make up your mind to stay with what you know is right, stay with what God's given you. Go out there and fight for souls. Go out there and compel people to hear the gospel. Hear what God has to say. He has something good for you. God loves you. He wants to take care of you. He can put you in a better place than you are now. And so if you will, we will stand with that and understand that God has given us this message and given us this truth and given us this word. Nothing will be able to prevail against that. Not one thing. I don't care what anybody does. It won't separate you from God. It won't come between you and God. He'll always be there for you. And he'll always come to bat for you. Amen. Why don't we stop? Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us understanding and knowledge and power that comes with that. And we bless you and we thank you, Father, for giving us everything, everything that pertains to life and godliness. Thank you, Lord, that no principality, no power will prevail against your church. The gates of hell, even governmental gates, will not prevail against your church. Nothing can separate us from you and your love. Nothing can separate us from you and our right to worship you, Lord. And we do worship you. We exalt you and we magnify you. We thank you for being our God and adopting us as your children. We thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. If you'll put on some music, praise God. And we'll uh, see what God wants to do. He may just want to have an altar call.